We've been spending uh, the last six weeks looking at this opportunity that every believer has to truly have spiritual discernment. That discernment comes as we begin to, to focus really clearly on what some writers call indifference to anything but the will of the Father, just as Jesus had. It also has to do with wisdom in the sense of the competence in regards to how life really works and being able to access the wisdom of God. This week, we're looking at the fact that, that God wants you not only to establish boundaries to value your own personhood, to, to guard your heart. But he wants to be the one who enforces the boundaries around your life. He wants to be the one who is your defender, your advocate. And the way that God enters into this, this boundary keeping, this enforcing of the borders, is the fact that he is a God of covenant. Um, yesterday we looked at Deuteronomy 29. I want to look at it a little differently today, but remind you of a few things from this passage. This is one of Moses' last messages, a series of sermons that he spoke to the people before he went to be with the Lord. This is Deuteronomy 29, 12 through 13. Same passage I read yesterday in the, in the service. You are standing here in order to enter into a covenant with the Lord your God covenant the Lord is making with you this day and sealing with an oath to confirm you this day as his people that he may be your God as he promised you and as he swore to your fathers Abraham Isaac and Jacob see in this passage you hear two kinds of languages two very distinct languages but both are characteristic of God and they're characteristic of his covenant on the one hand, there's this clear language of his love for, for these with whom he's making a covenant. He uses personal possessive pronouns. Moses makes clear that God is calling his people and that he is wanting them to call him your God. This is, this is very relational. Uh, it's actually possessive pronouns. That's a very... It's a very powerful uh, form of grammar there. But on the other hand, you also see the language of law. So this relationship is being sealed with an oath to confirm you this day as his people. Uh, Ashley was closing out the service yesterday. She made a very profound statement. God, by covenant, is making it illegal for him to not love you. In other words, he's legally loving you. He's binding himself to love you. When he calls us his people, and he, he wants us to call him our God, he's doing it in this kind of stunning blend of law and love. Stunning because it's personal with, with the you know, immortal, invisible, only wise God, personal. and But it's made more loving and more intimate because 
he's legally binding himself to the relationship and he's doing so knowing exactly what he's getting into in the relationship this is why it's so important you begin to understand that if something is feels like it's pressuring you that it's causing you to do something by compulsion that's not a characteristic of God. God is voluntarily binding himself. He wants this to be mutual. There's nothing, there's nothing about a kind of com compelled or, or, or something where you have no other choice in the matter that in any way appeals to God. He's making promises and vows to be loving, to be faithful, no matter what the circumstances are. Now, why is this language so important? Well, because in today's society, the idea of, of being bound and losing your freedom is in many pe people's minds the absolutely worst and most destructive form of relationship. It'll destroy your happiness. It'll keep you from the fulfillment of your individual self. In our society, everything's about individual self triumphing over all and not being bound to anything. I mean, as a matter of fact, sometimes when people get married, I think they should say, well, I will be married to you as long as you are who you should be in my, my estimation. And if you stop being who I think you should be, then I'm out. You see, but in a covenant, two people look at each other and they say, I will be what I should be, whether you are being who you should be or not. This is really hard. And in a marriage, it only really works if both people in the covenant say the same thing. I will be what I should be no matter what. In a way, and this is what blows me away in the covenant with God, but in a way, in the marriage covenant, you sort of see this clearly. You're saying, you are more important than me. See, most people, when they get married, it's not because the other person is more important. It's because they have found that this person makes them feel a certain way. And as long as they make them feel a certain way, they'll be willing to be in relationship. But covenantal relationship, and, and really the only relationship that really works and is satisfying and fulfilling, is if you're at the place, you could say, you're more important than me. This relationship is more important than my needs. I will be more committed to your needs than my needs, and I'll be more committed to the relationship even than my needs, even if my needs are not being met at the moment. Very few of us can actually say that and, and mean it because, you know, most people in our life we have in our life because, not just because they're more important than us, but because of how they make us feel or how they meet our needs. See, in a way, a covenant is a willing surrender of your freedom but you only do it as a sign of love you're not doing it as a slave you're not doing it because you have to or pressured to do so you do it because you want to this is powerful when you see that god is saying your needs are more important to me than anything else my my love for you transcends even everything else in a sense because he knows the people he's having he's making this covenant with, have nothing to give to him. I mean, what do we have that hasn't been received from God? And yet God says, you're more important to me than my own needs. <laughs> wow. 
So this is profound, you see. It, it, the more we understand God's covenant relationship practices, the life-changing, joyful relationship we can have with them is so much better than a consumer kind of relationship or a transactional sort of relationship where it's all about me, 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 me. One of the great things that C.S. Lewis said is if, you, if your goal is happiness, you'll never attain it. But if your goal is, is relationship with God, making Him ultimate, covenanting with Him basically, saying, God, you're more important to me than anything else, he says, then you'll not only get God, but you'll get the happiness you were looking for. But the problem is, if all you ever have with God or anybody else is just a consumer relationship, the me, 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 you never get any of the happiness or the satisfaction or the fulfillment. Look, it's okay to be a consumer at the grocery store. It's just not great to be a consumer with other people. This amazing thing is that God is showing by his own actions, his own revelation, that the most profound, most joyful, most life-giving, deep, and glorious relationships are covenantal. You see, if that is what God's showing, then your relationship with God has to be covenantal. A lot of people want a relationship with God. They, they'll say, you know, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual, or whatever it is. But the problem is, if if you're going to have a personal relationship with God, it has to be a covenantal one. God never gives his love without commitment. And the commitment he makes to love is covenantal. Again, it's so interesting. It's not about God's needs. It's about the needs of the persons he's covenanting with. But they have to be able to receive the embrace of the boundaries of his covenant. Um... It's impossible to relate to God other than in a covenantal way. Let me, let me take a deeper dive into this. Notice what he says. Moses, you see, is, is hundreds of years later, but he's referring back to God's covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs. So let's go back to Genesis 15 and just see how... how stunning the covenant is. In Genesis 15, God tells Abraham that he's going to bless him. And Abraham wants to know how. And he, also, he asks him, he says, how can I be sure that you will? So God tells him to make a sacrifice. So he cuts these animals in pieces and lines them up in two rows. You know, again, it's a bloody mess. You know, it's, it's, it's not pretty. It's a messy thing. Because when God has, here's the deal, God makes covenant with people, it's a messy thing. We're a messy group of people. So he forms an aisle. Now, Abraham's supposed to walk through that bloody mess. He's supposed to walk through between the animal parts. Kind of gross. But it's showing how, how, how deep this commitment of covenant is. There's blood. There's death. There's life. So you're supposed to walk through it. Now, that might be really confusing, but Abraham was not confused at all. See, when, when somebody who was a lord, a, someone in power, wanted to make a, make a covenant with someone of a lesser station, maybe a peasant or a lesser person in some way, 
This is what was done. The animals were cut, they were arranged, and the, as the servant walked between the rows of the animals, he swore an oath to the Lord. Now, why would he do that? Well, the servant was acting out the curse of the covenant. You see, every covenant has a blessing and a curse. It has, it has wealth and it has disaster. And so the servant was acting out the curse aspect of the covenant. And he was saying this, I swear loyalty to you, Lord. And if I do not keep my promise, may I be cut into pieces like these animals. So that's, this is common practice of saying, this is how severe you will be treated if you break your promise. So Abraham figured that he was arranging the pieces for the ceremony. He was the lesser and the Lord the greater. So he thought he would walk through the pieces because there was never a time in history that the higher, the, the Lord, would walk through. It was always the peasant. It was always the lesser person. So Abraham waited and waited. And then as the sun was setting, Scripture says Abraham fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. When the sun had set, and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. See, what that means is God himself, the Lord, was passing through the pieces. Never been done before. He had promised to bless Abraham, but Abraham is startled. And so is every commentator on Genesis 15, because not only did God promise to Abraham that he would bless him, but that God promised God would die if he doesn't bless him. He's promising to be torn to pieces if he doesn't bless Abraham. This is amazing and it's shocking to Abraham, but there's more. There are two more shocks. One, God himself went through the pieces. Okay. Number two, though, Abraham was never called to go through the pieces himself. God didn't let him. And then it ended. This was unheard of. The Lord himself came and walked through the pieces. And the servant didn't even make an oath. He didn't even, get to, he didn't even participate in this oath. Abraham understood what this meant. It meant God was making a promise for the both of them. He was taking the curse of the covenant for the both of them. Not only is God saying, I will be torn to pieces if I do not keep my covenant. He's actually saying, I will be torn to pieces if you don't keep the covenant. Here's what God was saying to Abraham, but it's also what he says to us. I will, I will bless you no matter what, even if my immortality must become mortal. If my glory must be drowned in darkness even if I literally have to be torn to pieces. And we know he was. The very seed of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ, when the darkness came down on Mount Calvary. In the midst of the darkness, there was God in the person of Jesus Christ, and he was literally being torn to pieces, nails, spears, thorns. Why? He was taking the covenant curse. Paul says in Galatians 3, 13 and 14, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. You see, that's it. That's the blend of law and love. 
That's why we can say the blessings of God are unconditional. That's why we can say God has made it illegal not to love any who are, not, who are in Christ. Because on the cross, Jesus Christ absolutely fulfilled the conditions of the law so that God could love you unconditionally. With His perfect life, Jesus Christ completely fulfilled the terms of the covenant. And with His sacrificial death, He fulfilled the curse of the covenant. And that leaves the blessing for you and I. And to anyone who lifts their empty hands of faith and asks for it, this is the gospel. This is why in this week I'm asking that those of you who understand what God has done and how God has made it illegal <laughs> to, to undo the love He has for you or to not love you, is that it's time for a deeper honesty. You can't really have deep spiritual discernment if you will not have radical honesty. And take ownership of the areas where your life is out of covenant and out of alignment with the covenant embrace of God. There are many of us, and, and you know, I don't know how many in this group that listens to me, but I'll tell you, throughout the world, there are many angry people at God who choose not to deal with their anger, who choose not to deal with the fact that, that uh, they're disappointed or they feel upset. So what happens is, instead of being, instead of being you know, in the experience of and the encounter with this grace of God, this love that, that not only has He made legal, but He's made it illegal not to love you. They live their life as if God is far off and they shut God off emotionally because someone or somewhere has told them they're not supposed to be angry or they're not supposed to feel anger. And so what happens to a lot of us is we, we can't get to the loving feelings of the covenant because we can't get through our anger and our anxiety and we can't get through our lust and we can't get through our guilt and our shame and our fear. One of the uh, writers that I've been reading tells a counseling story that struck me. He, he's telling about a man who was cheating on his wife. And he says this, this man kept saying how sorry he was and how he really didn't want to be an adulterer. He joined an accountability group, uh, Christian accountability group, where he confessed his affair and declared that he wanted to obey God, but no matter how much he said he would change, he did not change. His counselor decided to take a very blunt approach to this man, very honest approach to this man. And he said, tell this accountability group and tell God the truth. You really don't want to change. You enjoy your affair, and your real wish is that God would take his rules and leave you alone. This took the adulterous man aback, but gradually began to see how true the counselor's assessment was. Finally, he told the truth about his lack of love for God and how he really wanted to do his own thing. At first, this admission scared him. He was giving up the falsehood of seeing himself as a Christian who cared about holiness. But his honesty felt better to him than all his lies, and something began to happen.
in the safety of grace, which was allowing him to see himself as he really was, he began to regret who he was. He began to see the emptiness of his heart. When he owned who he really was from his heart, he did not like himself. He was developing what the Bible calls godly sorrow, the kind that actually leads to repentance, and he began to change. He told the person he was having an affair with that he was not going to see her anymore. And he made a new commitment to his wife, this time he meant it. Whereas for years he had been saying yes and acting out no, he finally owned his no to God directly in honesty. Only then was change possible. You see, if you begin to really understand the gospel, then you realize you don't have to fake it. You, you realize you can be honest about what you're really dealing with because you're in the safety of grace. And the righteousness that matters is not your righteousness, it's the righteousness of God. But recognizing that your own life has these, you know, these shameful areas, these broken areas, can only really be healed if you understand and begin to understand the healing pattern. God keeps revealing His love to you. He keeps revealing how important you are. He made a covenant with you. You were more important to Him than His own life. That's the healing pattern. Here's the thing. This, is, this is, was hard for me to make the shift because for so many years, I was just beaten down with such, you know, morality and all these things. And so I was trying to be Christian instead of experiencing the covenant love of God. But once I began to understand the covenant love of God, that God is a person who extends his boundaries over my life, and he does so in grace, not because I deserve it, not because I earned it, but he extends his boundaries of covenantal love over my life, then I could be honest about all of my broken places. Here's what, here's what I learned that was different from the way the church was treating the issues in my life, is he wasn't trying to fix me. I'm not a machine. I can't just say, stop being afraid, and the fear goes away. He was healing me, not fixing me, because I'm a person. And he wasn't pressuring me. Like he wasn't putting the threats of punishment on me because Jesus had already taken the punishment. Rather, it was his kindness that led me to repentance, not the threat of punishment or of consequences. And what I began to realize is the change was real, not temporary. What I find with people who repent because they get caught or repent because they're afraid of consequences is there's a surface change, but there's not a heart change. So one bad behavior gets replaced for another. So someone quits drinking alcohol, but they die from cigarette addiction. Or one person stops, you know, a certain addiction in this area and they become, they, the food becomes the addiction or shopping or whatever it might be. God doesn't want to simply replace one bad coping mechanism with one that's a little bit better. 
He wants to heal you from the inside out. That's how he enforces the boundaries of your personhood. He doesn't fix you. He doesn't threaten you. He doesn't pressure you. See, owning my issues within the covenant boundaries of God allows God then to come in and bring healing. See, when we can own these our boundaries with God, we can change. We can see Him. We can hand them to Him and say, God, work. But what's hidden and, and not communicated, what's not revealed, will not be healed. They need to be honestly owned, exposed, made a part of our communication with God. Then we can collaborate. We can say, God, take the heavy end of this problem in my life. So what does this mean? Well, it means God wants to be the enforcer of the borders of your life, but he will not defend the lies that we tell ourselves or that we tell others about ourselves. He doesn't defend your imposter. I mean, this is what the covenant means. He has provision for you. He has protection for you. But he also... He wants permission, in a sense, from you to invade the borders. But he also wants you to live within the permission of his borders. It's an amazing, it's amazing synergy that happens when we say, God, come into my space. And when we realize, God, you have brought me into your space as my protector and my provider. Now, can you get hurt being honest? Yes. Sometimes the worst people to tell are Christians because they'll give you cliches or because they're so uncomfortable with their own emotions, they'll be uncomfortable with yours. Some of the worst things I've heard is when I was vulnerable with certain Christians, Christian leaders. I felt like I was abandoned or attacked. They used my weakness as a weapon against me. But that's not the way it is with God. I, uh, Psalm 51.6 he desires truth in your innermost being. John 4, the Father is looking for those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. See, it can't just be the truth of somebody else's words like a great hymn or a wonderful praise song. He's talking about you worshiping in your own words, authentic, genuine, bringing what's real and true about you, not what's aspired to or hoped for, what you really are like. Why can't why can you do this? Because the covenant won't change. <laughs> it's an unconditional covenant. It's a covenant knowing exactly how messed up you are. And it's also a covenant with incredible security because the righteousness that makes me acceptable to God is not my righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ. He knew exactly how messed up you were. He's just he's waiting for that kind of intimacy with you where you bring these things into the light because God can transform anything with his love if it's brought into the light. Let me give you a few points here to close with. Honesty with God is always safe. Honesty with God is always, always safe. Nothing will change for the worse and everything will change for the better. Romans 8.1 never changes. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you understand? Your forgiveness, your cleansing is now connected to God's justice and His holiness. 
Christ has already paid. The Father will never ask a second payment. That payment has already been received, so you are already considered as righteous as Christ. Why then do you want to keep living in things that will destroy you, that cannot satisfy? The Father's love is real. The Father's love desires to be the enforcer of the boundaries of your life. Your innermost being is known by God. But you cannot grow in intimacy with anyone if you will not share your deepest issues with them. He delights in your honesty. He delights when you willingly share your hurts, your failures with Him freely. That shows that you understand the relationship. That shows that you're living a gospel life, not a performance life. No matter how bad your thoughts that you're dealing with, even if they're blasphemous, if they're lustful, if they're pornographic, share them with God. Even your behaviors that you're the most ashamed of or the emotions that you're like, how can a Christian even have emotions like this? Do you understand something? This is so biblical. You enter into the pleasure of God when you are honest with God. When you tell Him the truth about what you're wrestling with, no matter how evil it is, Already he knows it. But when you share it with him, you delight him. The more honest you are, the more you enter into the pleasure of God. And the only way to be transformed is to bring everything into the light and let him change you. It's the hardest thing. Sometimes what we want to do is clean everything up and then we bring it to God. And God says, no, bring it all. Let me cleanse it. Let me heal you. And this is, this is, again, we go back to original thought uh, that was part of this series. See, either you're willful or you're willing. You're either willful or you're willing. If you're willful, you're not discerning. You haven't grasped the gospel. Because your willfulness is the reason you're such a mess. But if you're willing, if you're willing, and one of the prayers that a great man of God who became a great prayer warrior started his prayer life with was this, God, I'm willing to be made willing. In Jesus' name, amen.